energizing and amazing. These are the two overarching categories, Bergamon says, of prophetic imagination. So our first week we talked about, you know, kind of basic term, well not that basic, but defining terms. What is prophecy? What is prophetic imagination? Prophetic imagination is a state of mind. It's an alternative consciousness that cuts across the grain of the what consciousness? Royal. Thank you. Wonderful. The royal consciousness. Uh, and uh, then we talked about criticism and pathos and, and Moses, uh, energizing and amazement in Isaiah. Um, we talked about Jeremiah. Uh, he, he embodies the, 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 the heart of uh, prophetic critique. Uh, glimmers of hope, but you got to look for it with Jeremiah. Second Isaiah last week, we talked about energizing and amazement. Uh, what, what does second Isaiah do? He, he, even in the midst of exile, uh, imprisonment, uh, captivity, he, he says, we can sing. We can sing. Even if we're barren, we have new life to look forward to. Uh, even if um, we have no money, uh, we can buy bread and wine from this God. Um, so uh, now we're, we're going back to criticize, criticism and pathos. But this time, we're going to talk about our dear friend Jesus. So you're going to notice over these next couple of weeks how everything comes to full expression, as the phrase Brueggemann likes to use. We're going to bring to full expression all of the criticism and pathos, all of the energizing and amazement of the prophetic imagination, and see it embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so, we are going to begin with, we're going to talk today, we're going to talk about Jesus' birth, his life, and his uh, intro, introduction of the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk, we're going to conclude with Jesus' death. And then, a, a, uh, I think, a compelling example of a more contemporary figure who exemplifies the criticism and pathos, or compassion, of Jesus. So, Jesus is just born. He can't talk. He can't walk. He's not speaking truth to the powerful. He's, done, he's not healing anyone yet. He's not preaching yet. He certainly hasn't gotten in trouble yet. But he is troubling already. His birth uh, announces to the order of the day that a new order is on the way. Uh, Herod knows that his days are numbered. He gets word from uh, the Magi, the wise men. They come to see him. We heard a king was born. Herod is not, uh, he does not, how should I put this, receive this news well. <laughs> when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. He sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Does this, does this uh, systematic killing, does this genocide remind you of anything in Egypt? <laughs> we talked about Egypt. You know, Pharaoh is in a panic. Uh, anyhow, and he ends up losing his own son. Um, then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Herod's rage and Israel's weeping, Rukamon says, are the last that Herod's rage is the last 
gasp of the old order. The old order never ends well. It's never pretty. Um, it's a death gurgle. Uh, and people are sacrificed by the powers. He's desperate to hold to the old way. Jesus has clearly entered the scene as a promised new king. We know this from a little bit earlier in that same chapter that I'm reading from Matthew chapter 2. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered frankincense, they offered him uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, they're, they're kneeling down, they're paying him homage. This child who, again, has yet to utter anything than uh, an infant's cry, uh, his presence has already announced the inbreaking of a new order and the power, the powerful one, the, the representative of the, the structure of power, the hierarchy of power, the, the powers of domination have taken notice and they're lashing out. This commences Jesus' criticism. He hasn't even said anything. Isn't that remarkable? Then a, a, a little bit more cheerful version of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2. This is the, really the most famous one that we all love to hear read on Christmas Eve. And I just love, uh, so Luke's a friend of the poor. He's a friend of the peasant. He's a physician. He's in. Uh, he, he's coming alongside the sick and and those who who need healing. Uh, and um, he he takes sides. Remember, uh, prophets take sides. Uh, there, you won't get any diplomatic speech. Oh, well, let's hear from the other side. Uh, look, look, let's hear what the tyrant has to say. I'm sure he's got some. We need to just be fair to the tyrant because he, he's got some good ideas too. No. Prophet takes side. So Luke, he kind of, I, I read this first verse of chapter 2 as a kind of mocking tone. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. He said registered. They're going to register you. And then, then you've got to go get registered. Everybody's got to go get registered. <laughs> that three times. Three verses, three times. We get registration, registered. Uh, we get uh, bureaucracy. We get social crafting, uh, nation crafting. We get paperwork. We get forms. We get boxes we have to check. Check your race and check your gender and check your income level and check this and that. And we're going to put it and process it and do it. He's mocking all of this. Uh, and then, with th that's how the chapter starts. But by the middle of the chapter, this is so, this is so wonderful. Nobody, nobody's excited about the registration. <laughs> Joseph and Mary have to leave and go back to their hometown. They've got to travel. Mary's pregnant. This is not a good scene. They've got to keep stopping along the interstate because she has to keep going to the bathroom. And she's cranky and she's got morning sickness. And this is bad. Nobody wants to do this. This is just a power. This is just a, a power move by the authorities. Uh, we're going we're gonna to register you. Next thing you know, we're going to tax you. We're going to keep track of all you people. We got you under surveillance. We know where you live. We know where you're from. And keeping count. Remember, remember uh, the prophet Samuel saying, uh, "Don't get a. I know you want a king, but here's what's going to happen if you get a king. He's going to take. He's going to take more." He's going to take your money. He's going to take your income. He's going to take your children. He's going to put them in the military. He's going to take you and put you in some kind of desk job where you have been on the farm in the sunlight 
and enjoying life. Now you're going to be pushing paper. That's, that's registration, registration, registration. And then, verse 1 through 3, then verse 17. This is after the shepherds and all they've seen, the, the angel, the heavenly host. This dramatic scene unfolds in the fields by the shepherds keeping their flocks by night. It's a magical, enchanting scene. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. Oh, now, now there is awe and wonder and amazement. And still, Jesus hasn't said a word. Just his birth is announcing and inbreaking of a new kingdom, a new reality, a new power structure, a, a new jurisdiction, a new government. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys will remember. If you, if you weren't here, there's no way you could. But uh, my very first Christmas Eve sermon, I told one of my very favorite stories. Uh, still one of my very favorite stories. The sermon title was An Unregistered Birth. Jesus is the unregistered birth. The powers do not have jurisdiction over him. He's come in out of the blue and the powers are not going to like what he has to say because he's, his power is going to displace theirs. Uh, and I talked a little bit about checking boxes, you know, registration, paperwork. And I concluded with the story of uh, my Aaron's firstborn child. So here's how that happened. Uh, Elle was born. Uh, the nurse came in, and we're all in awe and wonder and amazement and first child and uh, excited and overwhelmed and speechless. And here comes the nurse, who was wonderful, by the way, uh, but a serious demeanor. And uh, she says, you've got to fill out this form, the birth certificate. you got to... The name and the race and the gender and all the things. Um, and so we filled out the form and uh, Aaron and I had already decided we weren't going to check the race category. Because I've been reading this guy, Walter Brueggemann, a lot. And I was all hopped up on Brueggemann and other things like that. And so I was just, this was just going to be our little protest. We're just not going to check that box. I want to racialize my child on, on paper, the very first official act of anything I do as a father, I'm just going to racialize my child and participate in this whole whacked out system. Uh, she'll be racialized enough. But this could be my little protest, and Aaron and I. So we left that empty, and uh, we gave it to the nurse, and she went off and went to the nurse station, and uh, I don't know, an hour or so passed, and uh, we're just cuddling ill and having a great time. And she comes back into the room. And she goes, you didn't check the box on race. Well, we just, uh, my wife and I, we just decided we just, we weren't going we to do that. She's like, well, we got to put something. I said, I, can't, you can't leave it blank. She said, can't leave it blank, but I know just what to put. And she left. And I forgot. And two weeks later, I get the registration in the mail. And uh, it, it, the, the thought occurred to me. I was like, what did that woman put on this form? What does she do? So I, I, I opened the letter and I unfolded the fresh, freshly marked and officially sealed birth certificate. And I zeroed in on the, the race category. And wouldn't you know it, that nurse typed in human. I didn't even know that was allowed. But I wouldn't push anything past this particular woman. She was a strong character. Uh, and the register of D2 signed that was a friend of mine from college. Just wonderful moment. So take that, Quirinius, governor of Syria. Now, so that's just Jesus' birth. Criticism, pathos. Criticism, compassion, it's already started. He hasn't said a mumbling word. Well, now he grows up. Now, Jesus' life, uh, Brueggemann says, 
he announces the, the inbreaking of the kingdom. And there's different categories that are, where the criticism and pathos of Jesus comes into the kingdom. There's seven categories. I'm going to give you uh, four. Think. Somebody really old this thing up. Uh, so forgiveness is one of the first categories of uh, Jesus' criticism and pathos. And here's how it happens. So Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 11. This is the one where uh, Jesus is teaching and people came. They brought a paralyzed man. They carried four guys carrying. They can't get in because the place is packed because Jesus is a really good teacher, really good preacher, and he's already filling up the house. So they can't get in. And they've heard he heals, and they've heard these amazing stories. So they want to get their friend to him because he's paralyzed, and they, and they want to see what Jesus can do. What do they do? They dig through the roof. They lower him down. Uh, and uh, Jesus, uh, some of the scribes are sitting there. They're questioning in their hearts. Why is this fellow speaking this way? It is blasphemy. Because he's just hanging out. He's just handing out forgiveness like Oprah's handing out free cars in that one episode. You get a car, you get a car, you get forgiveness, you forgive. Well, who is this guy? Who does he think he is handing out forgiveness like this? These people are supposed to be repenting and going through, you know, penance and doing all the things. And he's just, he already forgave them. And he stood up, a paralyzed man, immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed. Now, Hannah Arendt was a great social critic, uh, did a lot of work about how Nazi Germany, Germany happened. She, famous uh, critic, middle of the 20th century. She says that, the, that this was Jesus' most dangerous action. Because if a society doesn't have an apparatus for forgiveness, like jails and justice system and some, you know, something bureaucratic, um, its members are fated to live forever with the consequences of any violation. They can't have this kind of forgiveness around here. Everybody's going to be running around willy-nilly committing sins, and there's not going to be any retribution. Or, or We can't let this guy run around like this and forgiving everybody. Dangerous. Um, but Brueggemann says the refusal to forgive sin amounts to enormous social control. See that a lot? You really see that in our society. Um, when Karl Barth came to America, um, he was asked, I think it was by, maybe by a student, I can't remember, what he, what he found, uh, what would he change? What's the first thing he would change about America? And he said the prisons. And it's far worse now. That the, the, the prison industrial complex is far worse now than it was when Bart visited America. But it's a brutal system. And not every, you know, we're, we're, we have the, one of the, of advanced economies in the world, we have the most imprisoned people. I think we've got something like uh, somewhere between 16 and 25% of the world's prison population. Yeah, I mean, it's, right, yeah, it's really extraordinary. And people living in, under the system of incarceration is even more. So if you've got a, an ankle bracelet, or you're on parole, or you're under supervision by Quirinius, uh, it, it's really substantial. Uh, you can't be going around forgiving everybody. You're going you're gonna to start to break down that system. And the people profiting off of it are going to lose money. So Jesus' forgiveness is a, is a method of critique of the systems of the powerful. Now it's an interpersonal thing too, but, it's, but it's, it's also that. It is a prophetic act. It, is, it comes out of his prophetic imagination. Another uh, characteristic of, of Jesus' critique, the way his life critiqued uh, the, the domination system was through healing and exorcism. 
Uh, Mark chapter 5. You may remember, may be familiar with Jesus healing the Gerasene demoniac. Now, the name of the man that he heals, or at least he says his name, is Legion. Well, that's a curious name. Uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. Well, he's just one guy, so clearly not playing with a full deck. However, Jesus, um, this is an unclean man. He's got an unclean spirit. He's not allowed in. You know, he's a marginal person. He's on the outside. So uh, they argue with Jesus, send us into the swine. Let us, let us enter them. So he gave them permission they came out into the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Well, Legion's a curious name because uh, the people that Jesus is preaching to in the story, uh, Mark's audience, for sure, would have heard a division of Roman soldiers. That was what a legion was. And uh, so they're, they're hearing the critique of the domination system. Uh, the legion would have conveyed to the common person, the peasant, uh, you know, the salt of the other people that are just listening to Jesus preach. Oh, I know what he's saying. These people who are, are marching around us, the centurions, the people who are keeping us down and occupying our territory, or, Jesus is sending them into the sea. That may remind you of uh, some other oppressors who were sent into the sea and drowned. So, critique, pathos. Now, here, here, here's another fun one. Jesus critiques the system of taxes and, uh, and debt peonage. Okay, I'm going to have fun with this. I'm going to go to... Uh, When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? When Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. So this, this is part of the thinking of scholars and any reader of scripture paying close attention that Jesus didn't Probably didn't pay taxes or tried to not to or wasn't really excited about it. Not that anyone really is. But anyway, however, so that we do not give offense to them, Jesus says, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that. Give it to them for you and me. Uh, that's not how you're supposed to do it, Jesus. You're supposed to take it out of your income. I'm trying to tax you. I get that you're trying to support the you know, temple and all, but uh, I was trying to make a claim on you and take from you. And Jesus is saying, I'm just going to go fishing and get it from the, from the fish. And, give, and, and then that's how that's going to work because you don't have a claim on me. I'm the wonderful counselor. I'm the son of man. I'm the new one upon whom the government rests. Uh, so they, that's another reason they don't like Jesus. Uh, you may also remember the argument, uh, or at least the conversation, the very polite conversation he has with the Pharisees and Herodians right in front of the temple when they ask him, should they pay taxes uh, you know, to Caesar? Uh, and Jesus says... Uh, you know, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Um, he also asked them to furnish a coin. One of the Pharisees or the Herodians, I can't remember which, has a coin with an engraved image on it. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you're not supposed to have graven images anywhere around you, especially not in your pocket. Jesus has just invited the Pharisee to expose his collaboration with the powers. Mm. 
right in front of the temple. Very embarrassing moment for the Pharisee. No one asked him any more questions after that. Jesus is not being diplomatic. Now, he threaded a needle. Uh, but when you see everybody just kind of quietly recede into the shrubbery like that, it's because Jesus has just won the argument and they don't know what else to say to him. Mm. Now, I'm not saying don't go out and don't pay your taxes and all that kind of stuff. By the way, this temple tax was due in March. So it's really, they were setting a long-term precedent, weren't they? Just one month off. Um, but I am saying, I like Brueggemann saying, part of this prophetic imagination that critiques these systems of, of taxes, uh, government uh, domination, uh, uh, domination systems, uh, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, they are being displaced by the things that Jesus is saying and doing and encounter after encounter he has across his ministry, his, his life that we have recorded. We're getting glimpses of his critiquing, of his dismantling, of his outsmarting this power structure that's failing, that's, that's dying. It's part of the old age. Remember, the kingdom of God is new, new creation. And it is a kingdom. Uh, and then Brueggemann really lays thick on compassion. So that's where we get to the pathos part. Um, and the word for compassion uh, comes from a Greek word, uh, Splankna, or splanknoisomai, which has to do with one's innards embracing the feelings of others. And remember we talked about grief and lament being uh, one of the, the greatest, it's the greatest expression of critique of the powers, because the powers want to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. They want to say everything's okay. They want to say we like the status quo. We like the way things are because... That's what's keeping us in power. That's what's keeping us wealthy. That's what's keeping us in charge. We like to keep things the way they are. Everything's fine. Pharaoh did not want to change. He did not want to release the Israelites. He wanted to keep them where they were. In fact, he wanted to keep oppressing them, giving even more work to do. Uh, and uh, what's happening to his heart? It keeps hardening. More, his heart's hardening. Jesus Cuts across the grain of all that with his splankna, his innards, his guts, his heart. He, his innards feel the feelings of others. He grieves with those who are grieving. He weeps with those who weep. He's moved with compassion by uh, his encounters with people who are suffering. And this Grief, this compassion of Jesus announces that the way things are is not the way they're going to be. And if you're taking advantage of people, if you're oppressing people, if you're part of this domination system that's causing this pain, then your days are numbered. Wonderful stuff. So, here's a... And this isn't just one, Bergman's not just talking about one of the Gospels, he's talking about all the Gospels. This is a motif in Jesus' life, his, his compassion. He, uh, and he began to, um, let's see. Pages mixed up here. Here. As he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. That's Mark. Another one from Mark. I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now on to Luke. As he drew near the gate of the city, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Uh, the only son of his mother. 
And she was a widow. So she's lost her husband, now her son, a large crowd from the cities with her. This has moved the whole city. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And from Matthew, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Quirinius, governor of Syria, Herod, Pontius Pilate, whoever harassed, they're harassing. The domination system harasses and renders people helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Have compassion for them, Jesus says. Uh, and then John. John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. This is Splankna. Deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Um, Jesus' compassion replaces the numbness. Now, this is one of the, another key term I want you to remember. That term numbness. We talk about royal consciousness. We talk about affluence. We talk about pathos. There's kind of terms flying around in your head, and maybe they're not all synced up yet, but here's a hint. What is this compassion doing? The effect that it's happening on the powers is it's breaking up, displacing the numbness, the status quo. What do you think about numbness? We talked about a couple weeks ago. Great example of numbness in our nation. School shootings. We're sort of getting used to them. It happened, oh, it happened again and again. The first real famous one in my lifetime was uh, uh, Columbine. I was in college. Uh, 1998, I think. And they just keep happening, happening, and we've become numb. There's so many different expressions of numbness. Jesus' compassion breaks up the numbness of the powers, of the way things are, of the domination system. The domination system wants us to be numb. Does not want to hear about grief. Does not want to hear lament. That's why I was so surprised. I showed you the video of the young woman, Emma Gonzalez, weeping in public, six minutes and 20 seconds of silence to represent the time duration of the attack on our high school. And this was publicized, this was, this was on television nationally. I couldn't believe that the, that the powers allowed it. But she was piercing our numbness with her tears. Jesus does this with his, his ministry, and he does it with his body. So, Talk about Jesus' birth, criticism, and pathos. I've just given you several glimpses of Jesus' life, criticism, and pathos. Now let's take a, a brief look at his death. Criticism and pathos. What's an example? Luke 23, 43. You have to look it up. Uh, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So if you're reading the book, uh, this is a really fascinating um, section of chapter 5 um, where he, he uses different sayings of Jesus from the cross. So the, the seven last words of the cross, he doesn't do all seven, but he does a four or five. Um, Brugamon, that is. Uh, and, and details the ways that these sayings are piercing the numbness or dismantling the power structure or exposing the powers, the emptiness of the powers, um, shining a bright light on the, on the dark powers. All the roaches and the mice scurry when you turn the lights on, and, you know, in the dungeon. Jesus welcoming 
criminal to paradise, Brueggemann says, is a declaration that another way is already underway. Uh, so imagine you're in an official capacity, the, uh, part of the structure that has uh, sentenced these men to death. You want their lives to end. You're going to exert your power. Uh, capital punishment is one of the premier characteristics of the royal consciousness. We're in charge of your life. And we have the power to take your life and extinguish it. By, see, by Jesus looking to the criminal and saying, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise, usurps that power of death and that authority over life and death and says, this authority over life and death is mine. And this criminal is going to be alive with me on the other side of this event. And there's nothing you, Pilate, can do about it. Nothing you, Centurion, can do about it. Nothing you, Domination System, can do about it. That's, that's, that's part of the good news of, uh, of Easter. To walk through that story, and it's hard. Uh, but when we, when we hear, I want you to hear this old statement. If you've been in church all your life, you know this story. You know that this probably printed in your memory. Truly today, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, I hope that you're hearing just a little bit of a slant on that now. Just a little bit of a different glimpse on that now. Maybe it can be life-giving for you. Maybe this helps you enjoy your Christian faith just a little bit more to know just how powerful, just how undermining, disruptive, innervating to the power structure that line is, that last word of the cross is. Each statement, Brueggemann says, of Jesus on the cross is a counter possibility that places all the old ways in question. A little bit of time, I want to conclude with one of my, one of my buddies. I never met him, uh, but those of you who know me a while probably get tired of me talking about Will Campbell, but I don't care. I love Will Campbell. <laughs> I'm going to talk about him again. Um, Will Campbell, I think, represents uh, some of the best of the Baptist tradition of Christian faith. Uh, Brief bio on Will Campbell. He was, uh, he grew up a preacher boy, uh, Mississippi. He was ordained with a Bible that was given to his church by the Klan. Um, went to elite seminary and then came back home and had, he had all these ideas about white people and black people living together in harmony. Oh. Um, and he tried to integrate his uh, university's, um, you know, the kind of the fellowship on campus as the chaplain there as the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, and he got chased to the, the Mississippi state line by shotgun wielding races. It's a great way to get your start in ministry. Um, Will was very trusted. He's one of the most trusted white people by um, Black leaders are in the civil rights. He was the only one, I think, who was allowed into the, the uh, founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And King himself kind of bullied his way through the vestibule and said, he's good, let him in. I know he's white, but it's okay, he can come in. Will's, Will's kind of like the Forrest Gump of the civil rights movement. He's just always kind of in the background, his fingerprints on things. Um, anyhow, uh, great preacher. If you were brave enough to invite him, um, he uh, once went to Riverside uh, in, in New York City, Riverside Church, and said, I know y'all called me to here to preach about race and help you feel more comfortable about being liberal and, you know, nice to black people. And uh, I know you want me to tell you you're, you're good people uh, and that you can keep all this. 
Uh, he was a brave soul. Anyhow, here he is. He did not like prisons either, by the way. And uh, he was in them often, visiting. So this is just a, I'm going to give you a glimpse to conclude tonight of an exchange of, that he had in writing with a chaplain named Amos Wilson, Tennessee State Prison. So here's the context. The Boston Globe reporter had once asked Will why he reached out in compassion to a man recently convicted of an especially heinous crime. Because I feel deep compassion for that man, Campbell explained. But why, the reporter continued, why would you feel compassion for any man that brutal? Because he's a prisoner of the state, Campbell responded. Jesus admonished us to visit with prisoners. No questions asked. I'm afraid I don't understand, the confused reporter fired back. Why extend this man the courtesy unless you're some kind of GD Christian? Well, Will confessed, I guess I am some sort of GD Christian. Chaplain Amos Wilson of the Tennessee State Prison may have never read Campbell's Catalogate editorials, or he might have been a little bit more prepared to deal with him. Um, but uh, he got a letter from Will um, about a couple of gentlemen who had come to visit the prison and asked to, to start some ministries there. And the chaplain didn't appreciate that. He didn't want them to come. He didn't want them, especially, he said, um, to be associating with among the most sociopathically oriented men in the institution. So Will writes him, and he says, uh, as a Christian, I do not know what the word means, so sociopathically oriented men. I know that it is a euphemism for what in the culture used to call psychopath and later character disorder, but in the Christian understanding, I did not know what those words meant either. Worldly standards, human categories, registrations. <laughs> and I am not suggesting that they do not have to be dealt with. All I'm saying is that those categories no longer count in my estimate of a suffering human being. Again, brother, let's get together. And witness to one another. If we can, I will enter the conversation fully aware that the label agent of the Lord can be just as much a human category or worldly standard as agent of the state. So let's get together and have a beer and try to learn to love one another as the man has loved us. Talk about Jesus. So he called, he called Jesus the man or Mr. Jesus. Right now, I doubt if either of us loves each other. Signed, Will D. Campbell. Now, postscript. Sometime after this exchange, Chaplain Wilson's denomination discussed revoking his orders. One of the first individuals to come to his defense was Will Campbell. And just no categories with him. No registrations. No uh, obeisance. No bowing to worldly categories and letting them define his life and shape his character. He was a, a practitioner of critique, pathos. And I'm just glad we can call him a Baptist. <laughs> I welcome questions you have tonight. We have one more week to we'll talk about Jesus again. Energizing, amazing. We may just talk about resurrection. And I'm going to help you uh, get with a couple more glimpses of communities that Brueggemann points to as prophetic communities, um, which I might say in parallel tonight, our prison ministry, prophetic ministry. Okay? Any questions? When you were talking about this, oh, what should yeah, please do. Yeah. We're recording, so. Thanks. When you were talking about this with Jesus and the the, the criticism, the, the the critique of the of the royal culture, the dominant culture, I was thinking about the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Yes. Uh, where he says, uh, 
My, Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews. Uh, and Pilate says, so you are a king. And he says, yes, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Yes, I, I can't remember where, but I think Brueggemann references a scholar who said, in fact, it wasn't Jesus on trial in that moment, it was Pilate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Bob. Sorry for the popping, but we live with it. How? I hope this adds to your point. <clears throat> One of the privileges of my life <clears throat> was knowing Will Campbell. I am very jealous. <laughs> yeah. He had a unique way of writing sermons, and he was a dynamic preacher. About 11 o'clock on Saturday night, he would take his bottle of Jack Daniels and sequester himself. Came out the next morning about 8 o'clock with a dynamic sermon and an empty bottle. <laughs> oh, I, he did call himself a bootleg preacher. Uh, I love the story of uh, one of his farm hand helpers uh, finding a big pile of his old sermons on a on a manure pile, and uh, came back and he said, "What are you doing? You, you, you put all your sermons out here. You you, you throw them in the at least you could have done is throw them in the trash. Why are you throw them on a pile of manure?" And, and Campbell said, "Bull crap, make us the cabbage grow." <laughs> He didn't take himself too seriously. Anyhow, okay, Jason. Uh, my question is about what you were discussing at the beginning, sort of the gospel writers interpreting the prophets talking about you. So you have these people who are struck with these beautiful bits of prose, and like you were discussing with King a few weeks back, talking about their current time, talking about things that are happening in their current time. Uh, and so then hundreds of years pass and these four writers are saying something along the lines of like, this individual is the new Moses. This individual is the person that's fulfilled these prophecies. And um, I don't want to say that my question is like, are the prophets telling the future? I don't, I don't know if that's my question. But are the gospel writers, what are they using rhetorical style here? Are they trying, I mean, what are they like, I'm not sure what my question is, but like, what does it mean whenever they say like, the prophecy is fulfilled and, and this person, this person is coming up from Egypt, this person is sending the legion into the sea and this kind of thing. Thank you. So I, I think um, and Richard Hayes uh, is, you can just, you might turn that off, Paul. Yeah. Thank you. It's a real funky system. Um, so Richard Hayes, a scholar, has done a lot of work on how, you, how the New Testament authors read the Old Testament and how they conveyed that to us. Uh, and he, it, part of his work, it, um, he's trying to communicate to all of us that uh, all of the gospel writers have a, one of their paramount concerns is to say, this is the one we've been waiting for. Uh, we've, had, we've heard from the prophets. We know our history. We've been waiting for Messiah. Um, we want to make sure there's no question. Here is what we, we've heard the prophets say. Here's where we're seeing this again, to, to borrow Rubemann's favorite uh, phrase. They, Jesus is bringing to full expression this poetic utterance by the prophets. Uh, now, we're going to tell you, we're going to show you his life and how it fulfills these prophetic uh, oracles, passages. Uh, and now it's up to you to decide. Are you going to have faith? Are you going to believe our, our account or not? It's going to make all the difference. So, um, the, um, Matthew uh, is, is kind of the... the He's the one with the kind of tweed jacket and the professor tie and the, you know, uh, those brown, brown glasses, uh, tortoiseshell glasses, you know. 
Uh, he's a Tweedy professor type of the, gospel, the four Gospels, and he depends a lot on the Old Testament. Uh, he, he wants his congregation to say, this is that. This is the one, we, this is the one we've been waiting for. Uh, and that's really part of the artistry of each gospel is how they're drawing on the tradition of Israel and the prophets. Um, I, I'm, I'm surprised how often Jesus, uh, Jesus seems to have been really fond of Hosea. But once you start, Jason, once you start looking for this, you're going to see it everywhere. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Uh, one more question. Uh, okay, great. We're working. You know, just to touch, my name is Blake, by the way. Blake, good to see you again. I drop in today, and um, I love the question that came out talking about the prophetic mysteries and trying to understand the hundreds of prophecies leading up to Jesus at this point and how he was just checking them off the box. It's amazing. But something that I think we as Christians, we kind of forget about, you know, we, we glaze past it, is the three gifts of the wise men bringing Jesus is so prophetic. You know, you're thinking about gold for a king, frankincense for a high priest, only the high priest would burn that as a freedom offering to God. And then you have the myrrh, which was meant for embalming. So it was like king, priest, and we know you're going to the death. You fit the bill of all these prophecies as a baby who didn't even speak a word. So when you go down this path, like you had mentioned, it's a, it's a bunny trail. It, it's a blast. So just want to touch base on that. Thank you, Blake. Uh, go, go ahead, Brad. I don't want to leave you out, man. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to say, is there anyone interested that uh, Google on himself addresses? Um, I was searching for your podcast right this last week. I have an on B podcast for Kristen Tippett interviews Google on. Um, I think it's a 2019 episode. Yes. It's an amazing episode overall. And he addressed that question about the language of fulfillment in the Gospels. Yes. Yes, that, and so yeah, Chris Tippett on being, and the title of that episode is The Prophetic Imagination, and it's about 45 minutes without the, you know, the announcements and all the commercials. Okay, thank you all very much. One more week, week five, Jesus, energizing, amazement, resurrection, and some glimpses of prophetic communities. Thank you all. See you next week.